You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that, Miriam. Well, temptation. We all know it. We've all experienced it. We all know that sense of wanting to do something that we know is wrong. I read this this description of uh, what temptation is like the other day from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He writes, In our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce, With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smouldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. And the lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. It's a painfully good description, isn't it? And and one that we probably all feel familiar with. I mean, we might be embarrassed to say that, to admit that we want to do what's wrong, that we find sin tempting, but it's true. So how do you go with temptation? How often do you say yes to the temptation? And how often do you say no? And how can we grow in this? How can we combat temptation better? Well, we're in week two of our encounter series, looking at the interactions that Jesus had with people in his ministry. This one's a little bit unique. It's not a person, but Satan himself. And yet there's a lot for us to learn from it about temptation and the devil and about Jesus and about how we can respond to temptation. And that's what I want to help us do today. I want to look at Jesus and this encounter with the devil 
And as we do that, I want to think about how his encounter with the devil can help us when we encounter the devil in our own lives. As we get into that, it's important to note, first of all, the context for this encounter between Jesus and the devil. You'll notice if you look in your Bibles in Luke 3, it actually comes straight after the baptism of Jesus, and that's crucial. Uh, uh, Jesus' baptism was essentially his commissioning for the work that he was about to take up. And as he was baptized, we're told that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This was the moment where God was publicly affirming Jesus as the son that he loved and the Messiah that he had sent. This is, if you like, kind of Jesus' ordination. God was sending him out to do his work, to begin his ministry. And yet the first thing that Jesus does as part of that ministry is quite surprising. He doesn't go off into town to start preaching the gospel. He goes off into the desert to be tempted. Verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And yet this is clearly part of God's plan. He's full of the Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit. God wants him to be out here in the desert and has planned for him to face these temptations. So why? What was God's purpose in sending Jesus out into the wilderness? Well, I think we need to see this moment as kind of the finishing school for Jesus's preparation. He has these six weeks in the wilderness alone with the Father and the Spirit, And it's likely that in this time he was preparing himself for what lay ahead, coming to grips with what it would require and strengthening his resolve to take it on. But before he could actually do all of that, that resolve had to be tested by the devil, by temptation. And we see a broader idea here too, that Jesus had to be tempted. He had come to save humanity and to do that, he had to be perfect where other humans have fallen. That means that he had to face the devil. He had to be tempted like every other human, but not fall. And so you actually notice in these temptations that there are hints, there are echoes of the past, in particular what happened with Adam and what happened with the people of Israel. That's because they were kind of the previous people of God, the forerunners for Jesus, if you like. Adam was the first man who, on whom hinged the whole future of humanity, but he fell, succumbing to temptation from the devil. Israel were the people of God's promises, chosen among all the nations to be his special family and to restore humanity. But they failed too, disobeying God and forfeiting the promises. And so Jesus has come to make up for that. He is the Messiah, the second Adam and the true Israel. But to be the Messiah, he must do better than those who went before him. He must respond to temptation better than they did. He must trust where Adam and Israel did not. He must be tested and proven. That's what's happening here. The whole future of humanity rests on this moment. His whole mission hinges on what happens next. If he does the right thing, he can continue. But if he falls, if he fails, the whole thing crumbles. That's what's at stake in this moment, in this encounter. So let's see how Jesus fares. Well, in the first temptation, the devil says, we're told that Jesus had ate nothing during those days, and when they ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. 
when you think about the context, you, you can understand why the devil starts here. Jesus has been fasting for six weeks. He's probably on the brink of starvation. He ate nothing during these days, relying on nothing but water. And where he is is incredibly harsh and inhospitable. When we're told that he's in the wilderness, it's probably referring to a patch of land in southern Palestine, uh, just near the Dead Sea, called Jeshimon, or the Devastation. Uh, William Barclay writes, The hills here were like dust heaps. The limestone looked blistered and peeling. The rocks were bare and jagged. It glowed with heat like a vast furnace, and it ran out to the precipices, 1,200 feet high, which swooped down to the Dead Sea. It was there in that awesome devastation, he believes, that Jesus was tempted. Now, that setting reminds us, of course, of the wilderness where God's people wandered through the Old Testament. But there are some crucial differences. Yes, it was hard for God's people in the wilderness, but they always knew God's provision. As we saw in Exodus, God gave them manna and quail for for food every day until they arrived at the promised land. But Jesus doesn't even have that. He has no food, probably very little water, all this time. So how will he respond when he's at his limits? I mean, Israel still had daily provision and they complained. They failed to trust the promises of God, the word of God. So what will Jesus do with even less? Well, he will hold firm. Verse 4, Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, it's important to note here that it you might have thought that in a situation like this that it would be quite appropriate for Jesus to eat. He's hungry. It's not wrong to eat. This is a chance for God to look after him. But Jesus says no because it's the devil who's inviting him to do it. He's not willing to let the devil decide his plans. You actually notice that the devil almost taunts Jesus if you are the son of God. You know, prove yourself. He's inviting Jesus to doubt his father, to question God's goodness. But God had just assured Jesus of his goodness. At his baptism, you are my beloved son. And Jesus rests in that now. Yes, he's hungry, but he will trust his heavenly father to look after him. There's much, I think, that we can learn from this moment. Of course, our temptation looks different. The devil doesn't say things like, if you're the son of God. He doesn't say that to us. He doesn't bother inviting us to turn stones into bread because he knows we can't do that. But he will often make us doubt God's provision, God's care. Ultimately, he'll make us doubt God's goodness. Think of what he did in the Garden of Eden. Adam had everything, save the one thing he didn't need, and so the devil tempted him with that. Did God actually say, you could be like God himself? Does he really care about you? Is he a good God? And I reckon the devil amps up these temptations when we're deeply in need. I don't know about you, but I am particularly susceptible spiritually when I'm vulnerable physically. You know, when you're tired or hungry or sick, it's much harder to keep your defences up, to find the strength to resist temptation. The devil knows this, and so he preys on this. He'll make your wants feel like needs, and then he'll make you doubt that God will provide them. That's what's so impressive about Jesus here. He's in great need. He's fasted for so long, and yet he stands firm, trusting God to provide for him. He trusts God's plan. He trusts God's goodness. Uh, I remember reading about a pastor who talked about how he guarded himself against temptation in ministry. Uh, Early on in his ministry, he sat down and wrote on a sheet of paper, something like, look, is there ever a time when it's okay for me to cheat on my wife? 
No. Is there ever a time where it's okay for me to steal money from the church? No. Is, is there ever a time where I can just give up my faith? No. He wrote all of these things down and he stored them away. Now, that might sound a bit basic, but it's actually genius. You see, he realized that there would be times where he would be tempted to do these things, when he would be vulnerable physically and so vulnerable spiritually. And that was the moment he couldn't, in that moment, he wouldn't have the strength perhaps to uh, to resist. That wasn't the moment to work out what he believed. In the moment of peace, that was the time to make his resolution. He made his commitments ahead of time. And I think that's effectively what Jesus has done here. He's tired, he's hungry, he's vulnerable, but he stands on God's word. He doesn't try to reason with the devil or debate. He just rests on God's promises. And so he's able to stand firm. So Jesus passes the first test, but there are more to come. In the second temptation, we get a something of an insight into both the power of the devil and the limits of that power. First, we see the extent of his abilities. Verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. It's a miraculous display of all the world's glory. And as he shows this great power, he claims for himself great authority as well. Verse 6, the devil said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. This is, I think, a temptation for Jesus to take the easy way out. Jesus has come to win a great crown, a great power, but the only way he can do that is to go through the cross. He must suffer and die for the sins of the world. Jesus knows this. In Luke 9, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Jesus knows all of what's ahead of him. And so before all of that, the devil offers a way out. I'll spare you all of that. I'll make you king now. It's like snakes and ladders. I'll just take you up the ladder to the end. As one writer puts it, the devil is offering Jesus the crown without the cross, power without pain, influence without opposition, glory without humiliation. And all he has to do is submit to the devil. Verse 6, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. But, of course, that's the catch and that's the lie. Really what the devil is offering Jesus here is autonomy, choosing his own will to do what he wants, to do what's right by him, which is what the devil always offers. That's what he said to Adam. When you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God. But it's all a lie because he's saying this autonomy is possible only if you submit to me. And so he's promising freedom even as he takes it away. And he does the same with us. He promises us the world, wealth, power, success, happiness, freedom, but only if we will give ourselves to him, if we will reject God's rule and pursue his path. He promises us total freedom, but we always have to worship someone. He promises freedom, but only for those who are willing to be his slaves. And do you notice how selfish the devil is? He promises power and authority, but he won't give it up himself. He does the same to us as well. He invites us to be number one, but he's doing the same to everyone else too. And so if we're all number one, then none of us is. Jesus, of course, sees through it all. He's come to do 
God's will, and he makes that clear. Verse 8, Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so in this moment, he's embracing God's plan and rejecting the devil's. Yes, the way will be hard, but Jesus is committed to it. He's really setting his face to the cross, accepting what's ahead of him. And in this moment, it's worth us stopping to thank Jesus for this. We know that the road was hard for him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, even this great hero cried out to God, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Like this was hard for Jesus. And he had the option in this moment to give all of that up, to avoid that. But he knew that he couldn't. He knew that he had to die, that he had to suffer if we were to live. He went ahead and took the cup and drank it for us so we wouldn't have to. He went through God's punishment so we wouldn't have to. He chose the cross before the crown. And he invites us now to follow his example. Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, of course, it's not the same cross as the one Jesus was pinned to, and yet it's a similar temptation to choose comfort over difficulty, to choose power over humility, to choose now over later, to choose the world over our cross. The devil tried to stop Jesus from dying for us, and now the devil will will try to stop us from dying to ourselves. And it's hard. Of course it's hard, but it's always better than the alternative. Jesus says, for what will it it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, the devil may promise the whole world, but if we follow him, if we listen to him, if we fall for his temptation, we'll lose our own soul. Yes, Christ calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him, but if we do, we'll follow him into his kingdom. So Jesus has faced two temptations, but there is one more. Again, there seems to be some miraculous power involved here. The the devil apparently whisks him away to Jerusalem and the temple, and here he makes this challenge. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Uh, Just like the previous temptation, this third temptation is an attempt to get Jesus to do his ministry differently. This time it's a call to embrace spectacle and show, to wow everybody with his power. And now this sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? I mean, haven't you ever wanted that? Maybe you've got an atheist friend or a skeptic. Haven't you just wished that God would just show up on their doorstep in some miraculous way and overwhelm all of their doubts? I know I have. And even just during COVID, I've often prayed that God would just miraculously intervene and end the whole thing in a way that's so dramatic that the only possible explanation is that God did it. That feels like a great strategy to me, an obvious way of drawing people to God. But God doesn't do it. And he doesn't do it here either. Jesus answered in verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And yet, interestingly, I think this might be the most common temptation throughout Jesus's ministry. You see, the people are constantly flocking to Jesus, eager for miracles. 
His disciples love miracles. When Jesus sends them out, they come back intoxicated by the miracles they've been able to do. And yes, he does do miracles, but it's never just to draw a crowd. In fact, he often asks people that he heals to not tell anyone about him. You see, he doesn't want to overwhelm or sidetrack his ministry. He does these miracles out of compassion, but he's not here to be a magician or a cheap genie granting wishes. His miracles show his power over nature, but their chief purpose was to show his power over sin. That's what Jesus was all about. That's why he chose here to reject the devil's temptation. And he would continue to do this throughout his ministry. Perhaps the most poignant example of all is at the cross. Remember, his accusers challenge him to prove himself. Matthew 27, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. They're offering the same temptation, but he rejects it. Of course, it would have been an amazing spectacle. It might have silenced his critics, satisfied his fans, but it would have sabotaged his work. You see, he had to die. He wasn't here to wow people. He was here to save people. That's what he was focused on. Well, Jesus passes that test and every test. The devil throws everything at him, but he stands strong. And in the process, he confirms his calling and shows his resolve. As one writer puts it, the temptation story shows us Jesus choosing once and for all the method by which he proposed to seek to win men to God. It shows us Jesus rejecting the way of power and glory and accepting the way of suffering and the cross. And yet, of course, this isn't the end of the story. We're told in verse 13 that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That means that the devil uh, continued to tempt Jesus. This was probably the biggest, most sustained and vicious period of temptation, but there'd be plenty more along the way. And yet Jesus stands firm every time. And this means that Jesus is able to help us when we are tempted. You see, the devil who was at work in Jesus's times is most definitely at work in ours. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what does this look like? Well, there's lots of aspects, but there's many ways in which we encounter the devil. And you can tell the works of the devil by his names. He is, we're told, the father of lies, the deceiver, constantly undermining the truth. For, as Jesus said, there is no truth in him. He is the tempter always looking to lure us into sin, making us doubt God's goodness and making us think we can sin without pain, making pleasure feel irresistible. Now, he can't make us sin. It's still our choice. As James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. But the devil knows these desires and inflames them, stirring them up until it feels impossible to say no. And so the Apostle Peter wants us to understand that we need to be sober-minded, be watchful, he says, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what the devil's trying to do 
to you and me. But in the midst of this, as our ancient foe seeks to work us woe, we have someone on our side, the man of God's own choosing, Jesus Christ. One of my favourite passages in the whole Bible is Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with, unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is saying that Jesus has been tempted and now offers to help us. He offers to come close to us. He promises that when we encounter the devil, we can also encounter Jesus. Every week I want us to really grapple with the reality of the incarnation, the the implications of the Son of God, the divine and the human in one person. And today I want us to think about what that means in respect to temptation. We're told here that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. He had to be tempted to represent humanity. He had to be truly human. And, in fact, he probably was tempted more severely than anyone else ever has been. C.S. Lewis writes, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only one, the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. And now he promises to help us, to draw on all of his experience, all of his wisdom, all of his strength to help us. Whereas it says in Hebrews 2.18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so, as the writer to the Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What this means is when we encounter the devil, we can also encounter Christ. And I think this is really the key to resisting temptation. See, we're told in Corinthians 10 that we can always resist temptation. No temptation has ever has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's always a way out. But we often don't take it because we don't seek Jesus when we're tempted. See, if we're honest, when we're tempted, the last person we want around us is Jesus. When I'm tempted, I want to get away from God. I want to do what's wrong. I'm trying to do what's wrong, so I don't want God there to stop me. But if I turn to him, I can find his strength. There's always a way out. We know that because Jesus always found it. In every respect, he was tempted, yet was without sin, and now he offers us the way out as well. And he's there to help us, even if we fail. You see, this is the other thing. When we do fail, when we succumb to temptation, (coughs) 
The devil will try to make it worse by making us feel utterly wretched. He's the accuser. And so he wants you to feel totally unloved. He wants you to believe that God will never accept you, that we are beyond the pale, that we have failed the test, and now there's no hope for us. But this isn't true. Jesus passed the test for us, and so we are secure. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But the devil will try to condemn you because he wants to keep you from God. The devil wants you to wallow in your sin because he knows how forgiving God is, and he knows that if you come back to God, you'll experience that forgiveness afresh and find new strength. This was impressed to me uh, upon me very vividly one night about 15 years ago. I've told this story before, so some of you will know it. I was single at the time. I hadn't met Ivana, but I was going through a period where I'd been looking at pornography. I knew it was wrong, and every time I did it, I felt incredibly guilty and ashamed. But I kept doing it again. I kept succumbing to the temptation, and I felt worse and worse. I felt further and further away from God. I was so, so ashamed to talk to him about it. I felt like I couldn't approach him until I'd fixed myself up. I constantly tried to prove myself to God because when you feel that shame, that's what you feel like you have to do. You can't just come and ask God for forgiveness. You have to earn it. You have to be more sorry, more determined. You have to fix yourself before he will accept you. And I remember one night, in an attempt to do this, I made a vow. I told God that I'd never do this again, never use the internet to look at porn. I wanted to show him how serious I was about this. But not long after, I broke that promise and I felt doubly bad. I'd done the wrong thing. I'd broken a vow and I knew that God doesn't like it when people break vows. And I remember that night going for a walk and just being desperate bringing it all to God. I was so very sorry. But finally now, I was also broken. I had nothing and I knew it. I knew there was nothing I could do to make up for it, nothing I could say to guarantee I wouldn't stuff up again. I came in my sin with empty hands and then he filled them. That night I had one of the most profound experiences of the gospel. I came to God with nothing and he gave me everything. He pointed me to Christ and what he had done on the cross. He invited me to give him these sins, to entrust them to Christ, to let Jesus pay for them and not try to pay for it myself. And then he offered me the strength to overcome them. And it changed me. When you sin, when you succumb to temptation, the devil is desperate for you to stay away from God. When you are tempted, he doesn't want you to encounter Jesus' strength. And when you fall, he doesn't want you to encounter Jesus' forgiveness. Because he knows that that is the true power to overcome sin. Forgiven sin is much less tempting in the future. That's what I experienced. So as we look at this wonderful moment the devil's encounter with Jesus points us to what we should do when we encounter the devil. When the devil comes, flee to Jesus, the one who was tempted and yet was without sin. And in your encounter with him, 
you'll find the strength that you need. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you were truly human. Lord, we worship you because you were always uh, obedient. Every time you attempted, you stood firm, you held fast. And so you were able to die for us as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. And so, Lord, we ask that uh, you will give us strength and wisdom. Lord, when we attempted, help us to turn to you. Give us your strength. Lord, help us to resist sin. And even if we don't, please help us to find your forgiveness and your grace. Thank you that you deal with sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.